bitch. Ah, you know what old Jack Burton always says at a time like this? When you have to shoot, shoot, don't talk. Bitch, the Chicago. Hey everyone, what is up? It is me, Ewan, and welcome to a new episode of the We Love Dad Movies podcast. We're gathering here this week to celebrate one of the most legendary filmmakers of the 20th century, Mr. William Friedkin, who sadly passed away at the time of recording last week at the age of 87. Personally, one of my favourite filmmakers of all time, responsible for The Exorcist, French Connection, Cruising, The Hunted... Um, and the film that we're talking about today is probably, you know, it, it's up there with his very best. Um, and that is To Live and Die in L.A., a film that I discovered for the first time last year, and it rocked my shit irreversibly. I have been obsessed with this film since the pulsating beats of Wang Chung blasted into focus. Um, I, I, am, I, I adore this movie, and with me today to talk about it, is Mr. Dan Greamer. How are you doing, Dan? Hello, I'm good. I'm, uh, uh, shit has also been rocked. Yes. Yeah. I mean, because you, you, you've... Your Friedkin journey is new, right? It's relatively new. So I've seen two Friedkin movies, this being the second. Wow. The first one was, like, literally the first week of this year was Sorcerer, which also rocked my shit so really my shit was pre-rocked and then it continued <laughs> to be rocked from this <laughs> it's funny because i watched sorcerer for the first time last year as well i got a, the blu-ray for christmas from my mum and we watched it together over that period and i remember being like wow this this is amazing freakings done it yet again yeah i think i think i'm still sweating from the first time i watched sorcerer <laughs> sweating like a leaky box of dynamite <laughs> absolutely that movie is I mean, it's kind of reductive to describe it this way, but that movie is tense as shit. Oh, it's not reductive at all. It's one of the most stressful movies ever made. Like, people talk about Uncut Gems being, like, a stressful time at the movies. Sorcerer is just as stressful, yeah. if not more stressful. Give me Roy Scheider on a rickety bridge. Adam Sandler's got nothing on oh, that. Roy Scheider, what a legend. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious, Dan, because, um, obviously, we're going to talk about To Live and Die in LA. Um, which in many ways is Friedkin's kind of... It's almost like a spiritual successor to The French Connection. It's it's spiritually quite entwined with that film. So I'm looking forward to you going back and watching that too, because I rewatched that the day of his passing last week, and it's still just incredible cinema. Um, and I'm sure that between Sorcerer and watching this, you've already picked up a few running, a th- a few running themes of Friedkin's work. You know, that kind of... Um, that visceral, you know, it just, I always, I always go for visceral as my adjective for Friedkin because it's visceral always, works. it's always brutally arresting, whether that's, you know, literal physical violence or tension. Um, it's explosive. It's fantastic. And to live and die in LA, um, you know, Friedkin kind of came onto the scene in the New Hollywood era in the 1970s, you know, announced himself really with the French Connection, which won Best Picture, uh, Best Director, Best Actor, um, and they did The Exorcist, which kind of redefined horror movies and is one of the greatest films ever made alongside The French Connection. Sorcerer kind of um, bombed the box office and kind of also there were a lot of negative reviews of it as well. Um, really? And th- yeah, yeah. Um, it's which is a shame because you know it's not my favorite. I, I, lo- I loved it. Like if I'm if I'm trying to choose my favorite freak and it's like picking the tiny like 
like the the smallest straws because it's <laughs> it's like the, the the margins are so narrow. Um, but yeah, to live and die in LA, it's kind of like a it's a cult movie because it too, you know, didn't widely get as many flowers as as Freakin's earlier stuff. Um, but it is a masterpiece. Um, and like I said before, it very spiritually entwined with the French connection and the idea of you know the 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 fine line between the cop and the bad guy and you know how there aren't really any heroes and it's um it's just fantastic stuff so yeah what but what turned you on to live and die away in the first place was it me <laughs> it, it was a hundred percent you <laughs> hey i'm doing the right thing <clears throat> it was it, i remember you watched it last year and immediately texted me about how insanely in love you were with it <laughs> and confession time I'd never heard of it before that time. Somehow I knew pretty much all the Freakings movies, even though I hadn't seen them. I knew what he'd done except for this one. And I don't know how that like went by me. And then after you watched it, you were going on about it for a long time. And then late last year, I posted like a Twitter prompt. It was like, Oh, people suggest some movies and I'll watch them in the year. Um, you were the only person that responded <laughs> with, <laughs> with this movie. Oh no. <laughs> But I wasn't I wasn't as active on Twitter then I guess so I was like okay well if there's one movie I have to watch this year it's to live and die in LA for 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 you and I was always going to get to it at some point and then um, obviously Freakin's death just gave me a, an unfortunate perfect timing to watch it if that makes mm-hmm. sense um, so then I was going to watch it like the day he died and it wasn't available on streaming anywhere which is something we've complained about multiple times about multiple movies. So I bought the Blu-ray from HMV and it came in like two days. The fantastic Arrow Blu-ray. The after that, that, I yeah, love Arrow. Yeah. Arrow is Reversible so cover. Yes. Um, because like, I enjoy some of the custom art they do for their stuff, but I usually do reverse it and put the classic cover on because... Um, yeah, I was considering the same with this one. I'm not usually too fussy on it. Yeah. But um, yeah, I watched it, it. I mean, it's Monday today. I watched it, I think, Saturday just gone. Um, yeah, I watched it, yeah, two days ago. And um, yeah, it just blew me away it's 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 got something for everyone who likes that kind of like who likes cop movies mm. in a way because it's it's a good action movie and it's almost like a buddy cop action movie without the humor necessarily there's some dark moments of humor here and there but it's it's got the action and it's got the kind of buddy cop movie plot where it's them trying to go you know against one bad guy but it's also, I said this on Twitter, It's it also takes the time to completely break down the whole archetype of there being one good cop who breaks the rules to take down the bad guy. And in most of these movies, you'll go in, fuck yeah, even though you would never want a cop in real life to do this. And here he's a monster. In this movie, it's like, he's wrong. Yeah, <laughs> the whole so time, he is wrong. This is... I saw someone describe it the other day as the anti-lethal weapon, which is obviously interesting because a few years before, you know, Lethal Weapon comes out in 87, I believe. I believe Um, so, yeah. And it's so funny because this is once again, obviously, you know, there were more glamorous portrayals of cops in the 80s um, by the time that that To Live and Die in LA comes around. But like the French Connection... We're talking a year out from 
Beverly Hills Cop, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, well, yeah. No, Beverly Hills Cop came out the year before, 84. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's what um, I mean, yeah. But it just feels like, just as the French Connection was kind of like, Friedkin gets his authority. He, he places a stamp down on that genre so authoritatively at the beginning of the decade. And he does the same thing for 80s kind of those 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 trends you see in cinema albeit partly through the decade but just as authoritatively um and it is it is such a <laughs> explosive noir um and for freaking himself you know it, it builds upon those themes of the french connection of how you know like the the, the line between <laughs> the cop and the bad guy it, it's often blurred um and the reason why he was drawn to, to live and die in LA, he got turned onto the book by, I think he said in the director's commentary by a friend. Um, it's based on a real book by, of course it's based on a real book, it's based on a book by a former Secret Service agent, um, a guy called Gerald Pedovich. Whom, and <laughs> as Friedkin was doing his research for all of this, he basically came to the conclusion that all Secret Service agents are fucking nutters. Um, <laughs> and you can kind of see when he's developing this screenplay with Pedovich, and Pedovich, um, came in and kind of touched up some of the dialogue in certain scenes, was given basically a blank canvas by Freakin to do that in certain moments. Um, and all of this is dialed into just William Peterson giving what I think is his best performance. I know people really like him in Manhunter as well, but he nails the just absolute asshole alpha male psycho character in this so well and it's a great movie about how those cultures and law enforcement perpetuate because you have opposite him John Panko's character um special agent John Vukovic who's a bit more meek and timid um but over the course of the film as he gets roped into you know um Ch- uh, uh, Richard Chance which is Peterson's character as he gets roped into these schemes to avenge his partner's death um he ultimately kind of assumes that role in a way i should clarify as well that there are going to be spoilers for this podcast so if if you haven't seen to live and die in la um please do go watch it because it's it's shocking and it's abrupt and it's abruptness um there are some things that you'll see and you'll basically you'll have your jaw on the floor because you can't believe that things have gotten this bad it's 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 that good the easiest way to describe it in terms of how you'll feel about it is I can't remember the last time that I was watching a movie at home and the movie ended and I sat there for a solid five minutes in silence and just was like, like barely even thinking. I was just like, wow, okay, that's mm. that's really got to me. It, yeah. it really, I, like, I didn't expect it at the start of the movie to have that effect in a way, even though so many people had said the same thing because... It was like, to go back to like when I'd heard about it, obviously you'd gone about it a lot, but I'd heard other people on Twitter going about it. So, for example, um, I guess Twitter friend of both of ours, Jackson Boren, he, he, uh, I think he watched it for the first time recently um, and, and said very similar things. And a couple of other people through through Twitter have kind of said the same stuff. And, and um, I was just stunned at the end of it. I sat and just sat through the entire credits and just was thinking about what I'd just seen. I think so much of it is down to the character stuff more than anything. Because it's a, it's a pretty... Up until kind of the third act, it's a pretty straightforward cop movie, really. 
in in terms of what the storyline is, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. it, it's the way it's presented that makes it unlike so many movies of the time. Because it is it is in terms of when it starts the plot, it's a, it's a very kind of simple tale of main character's partner gets killed by a bad guy. He resolves to take down said bad guy, and then but Friedkin just fully breaks down that storyline and that character in a way that most action movies don't don't do. Big shout out to to William Peterson as well. Who I think it's funny because I think a lot of people our age know William Peterson for one very specific thing. And that's CSI. And that's, <laughs> and that's CSI, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> he was, when, when we were growing up, CSI was on and, and he was the CSI guy and he's great and I didn't watch a lot of CSI, I watched some of it, and he, but he was very good in that show. And then... Have you seen Manhunter? This year it's like... Yeah, so I saw Manhunter a few months ago and I saw this and I was like, why do we not consider him one of the greats? Because <laughs> he didn't do enough. He didn't do enough. No, like, like apparently he's a he's a good dude too. Yeah, but he is he is truly fantastic in this as a guy with a fucking death wish who is willing to just he he is the worst dude. He sucks so much. My favorite thing about to live and die in LA <laughs> is that these two assholes enter into this pack together to avenge his partner's death, and nothing they do over the course of the entire film leads to any beneficial outcome. They are screwed. Nobody wins. They are awful. They suck. And it's such a good kind of cop suck movie. Um, and like how it dives into that is so, so impressive. So for people who are sticking around but haven't seen the movie and don't care about spoilers, um, I will give some context here. So the Secret Service, the American Secret Service, you may remember from our, our podcast on In the Line of Fire, that the Secret Service basically has two jobs. Protecting the president and dealing with counterfeiters. You know, they, they go after counterfeiters. Yeah. You know, counterfeiting costs the, the US economy millions of dollars a year. Um, and basically, Little Dialy rolls around this, this running investigation that Chance and his partner have um, regarding a known counterfeiter called Rick Masters. And I should also say that the, the novel in which To Live and Dialy is based is based on, obviously, you know, it's. Um, it's uh, Petrovich's, um book, but it's based on his experiences as a Secret Service agent. Um, and Masters is played by William Defoe in what is my favourite Defoe performance. Um, he is one of the great queer-coded villains. He's an artist um, by day and a counterfeiter by night. Um, he's classy, he's horny, and he's voyeuristic. <laughs> Um, and he's also a monster, um, a really efficient monster, but he's also weirdly charming in places too, which is kind of a similar thing they go with in the French Connection, where you see the nicer side of criminality and the gruffer side of law enforcement. But it's essentially them tracking him down because he's creating counterfeit cash and circulating it, you know, across the Los Angeles uh, area. And I'd be remiss not to talk about it because it's one of my favourite it's one of my favourite opening title sequences of all time. So after the opening scene, which obviously has... And we'll talk about Wang Chung as well, because this soundtrack is something I'm completely obsessed with. Um, to Live and Die in LA, and, and all the stories with, with that, and, and how Fantastic Friedkin... Soundtrack. How Friedkin got Wang Chung involved in this is such a great story, too. Um, but the opening titles, after they thwart the assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan... Uh, through hilarious circumstances as well. He just shows up on the edge of the building and pulls him off and surely would have been blown up along with the suicide bomber, but we'll ignore that. Um, <laughs> Do you know what I like about this yeah. opening segment? 
because we both talked about immediately about William Peterson's character and how he is very wrong in what he does and how he is this kind of breakdown of the whole one good cop thing. What I like is that for a very brief portion of the opening of the film, freaking like straightforward presents him as that character Mm -hmm. where he comes out and he's having a laugh with the guys and everyone likes him and then he's immediately taking down you know a a terrorist and and helping out his partner and all this and trying to resolve the second and trying to resolve the situation peacefully peacefully. as well he doesn't just immediately shoot this guy yeah and you sort of for a brief second you go oh he's he's all right and then the 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 rest of the movie makes you go no 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 he isn't He's 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 as fucked up in the head as the guy he's chasing. Yeah, totally, totally agree. But after after that opening sequence, we get it, it's probably my I think it is my favorite opening title sequence of all time, where you have um, "City of Angels" by Wang Chung play, and so the title sequence starts off in a dark red room with a revolver. It's, it's a firing range. The revolver you hear well, it's, it's black first. You hear bullets being loaded into a revolver. The hammer pulls back. You see the gun. It fires. White light. You cut to the the hills of Los Angeles as the sun rises slowly over the horizon. As this, the, the opening notes of City of Angels by Wang Chung are so nightmarish. Like for as much as the soundtrack itself is like a really fun banger soundtrack, there is such a melancholy imbued to it, and also a frenzied kind of unpredictability and, and and unease. And you get that as the sun goes over and it casts Los Angeles in this, like, you know, the, the tagline for the movie is that, like, the city of angels is about to explode. You feel that way from the first bits of the opening titles. You have the the, the notes are coming in and then, the, you know, the, the lettering in, in bright fluorescent green, you know, to live and die in LA. And then the just fucking goes and i remember watching it last year um and and like <laughs> had the tv on like full blast with the sound bar <laughs> run upstairs i'm like zan you need to hear this this is so amazing i just knew from that moment that this movie was gonna be for me because it's just so incredible and the entire opening bit is just cash being circulated across Los Angeles area as you get glimpses of the investigation of, of what's going on with Masters. And it's just the force and momentum that these opening titles establish, it does not let up the entire movie. There are obviously moments of tranquility, but there is that forward momentum that is clearly snowballing into a nuclear bomb of like violence and savagery and ultimately, you know, anguish and devastation. And I just think the opening titles are just fucking genius. You know, right from to the bit where it starts off to you seeing Masters in his apartment, he unfurls the painting, silence. And then it's just him burning it against the wall and you just bask in, you know, <laughs> you're basking in in Masters. And one thing that, not to, not to keep going on or whatever, because I, I just, I'm so oh, obsessed with this film. I watched the director's commentary the other day as well. And freaking going into the, I could listen to freaking talk about film all day. Like, if I know you have the yeah. Blu-ray, so I'd really recommend just like throwing the commentary on if you've got it. Yeah, well, um, well, like if you're doing something else as well, because it's a great thing to have on the background. Um, but him talking about how Chance and Masters are both basically suicidal, 
and he makes that clear from the first not from the 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 opening scene where or maybe you can read it that way where he's trying to disarm terrorists because that's a silly thing to do he could have gotten himself blown up but from the moment you see him and he's jumping off the the bridge and doing his little like you know thrill seeking thing and then masters looking at a self-portrait of himself and burning it and how that mirrors his ultimate fate at the end they're basically two suicidal characters who from the very beginning of the film we are basically made aware this is gonna end in destruction um and absolution and i just think that's so fucking good (laughs) the the you're on about the like the soundtrack in this the sound design in general is one of the best i've ever seen in a movie my weirdly possibly my favorite scene in the movie is and the one that really stood out to me like five ten minutes in is a scene where not a lot is actually going on but the way it's worked is just incredible and it's masters defoe in his dark room processing oh that's that's beautiful it's beautiful and it's immediately he's saying no words he's not doing anything like scary he's doing this making this counterfeit money in the in the dark room but the way the sound is done every single sound from him spreading out the paper cutting it moving it blowing on the it's got yeah 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 it moving the the sort of uh, the thing that sounds like the the board that makes noise Um, and that's that's timed to the city of angels track yeah yeah Yeah. but everything every sound and i'd listen to like you were saying about how you watched it i watched it i I put the blue on my xbox and then i had a pair of big headphones oh yes and I, i put them on and i just sat in front of my tv put these big headphones on similar to ones you're wearing now and and just listen to it like that and like i was just watching this guy do this thing and like i felt so uneasy like he's just with a scalpel just cutting a fake note off and i was like i felt really uncomfortable mm-hmm. and i was going throughout without having this character really do anything horrible or even say anything you immediately know how much of a complete psycho this man is mm-hmm. and how uncomfortable a character this man is and it was i just i'd never i'd almost never felt that from a movie before where just the, the background sounds that in most movies you would ignore tell you more than a thousand words could tell you yeah and obviously that's immediately punctuated by the murder of uh chance's partner which is really brutal i believe the uh so the guy that is like um defoe's henchman um oh who's he played by is his name is his name jack in the movie the shotgun guy. Yeah, we know who we know who you mean. And again, that that murder is so fucking brutal. Um, but he yeah, he yeah. was a former police officer, I believe, as well. And this is something freaking did with this movie is he he used real life police officers. The guy that inspired Popeye Doyle in the French Connection has a role in the French Connection, and I believe Petrovich also has a role, a brief brief role in To Live and Die in L.A. Um, yeah, he does, from what I read. Yeah. Um, but that that murder is so brutal. The squibs immediately, you know, and then he like spits the chewing tobacco on him. Um, it's it's brutal, and the the way that they react to finding his corpse and in the in the garbage kind of bin, um, you know, it really does sell the 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 brutality. And I always like that about Friedkin. I always feel like he captures the horror of firearms or just violence in his films. He never shies away from it. It's always left on the table it, it reminded me a lot of when we did witness yes when we talked about witness because a big conversation you and i had about witness is that 
for kind of a, a. I mean, I don't know if I could call Witness. I would. Witness isn't an action movie. No, necessarily. It's a noir. But yeah, but the, the action in that movie when it does kick off, it isn't. We said that it isn't fun. It's unceremonious. And yeah. The the there's some action in this that is fun. I think the chase scenes are chase scenes incredible. Chase is fun. Yeah. But whenever a gun is involved, it's uncomfortable. I keep using that word, but it, it's it's brutal. Yeah. It, it's it's horrible. It's it's way more violent than most similar movies are. Mm-hmm. Totally. And it's like you say. He just he knows how much of an impact that guns have, especially as we get towards the end. Um, but yeah, I, I want to bring up a fun fact time as well, just to diverge from the, the dark topic. Um, so when they were doing the counterfeit money for this, um, they were actually making counterfeit money on set. They freaking, I, I know what you yeah, said freaking that. had spoken to, they'd gotten, someone involved in production had spoken to an actual counterfeit and they showed them how to do it. So they basically made a bunch of one-sided $20 bills and these notes were taken by one of the production crew and then one of his his kids picked them up and used it at a convenience store and that led to the treasury department investigating the film <laughs> and um and he and freaking as he happily rounds off in the commentary is like now i was informed that if this were to happen, then I ha- I should ask them for a warrant and not submit to any questioning whatsoever. And he's just there talking about how they're there, like, Mr. Freakin, we need you to come in with question. He's like, do you have a warrant? <laughs> and, and basically, like, just, like, telling the Treasury Department to go fuck themselves, which is classic Billy Freakin. Um, My, um... Yeah. There was there was two bits that I read on, granted, only on the Wikipedia page that, that I really enjoyed for this. One of them was that story. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another was when, um, in the scene when... Peterson is chasing John Turturro in the airport. He's told not to. He can't go on. He's told yeah, not to yeah. run at the thing. And then Freak- and they went, we're just going to rehearse it. And then, and then, and then Freakin anyway was the like getting chewed out by the security. And he was like, I'm sorry, he's a young guy. He's a young actor. He's, it's been his lifelong dream to run but on the ramps at the uh, LAX. This is where I love. This is where I love that Freakin still knew that as much as he wanted to make this breakdown of this kind of movie, he still knew that people wanted that kind of stuff from it. Mm-hmm. Because when I was watching that chase scene... I watched John Turturro bump into all the people on the conveyor belt go or travel it or whatever you want to call it going through the airport and my first thought to myself was I hope William Peterson jumps on that thing and runs alongside everyone. There's lots of good running here. I mean, I, I think John Turturro is amazing in this film. Um, like, he is fantastic. And it's not like a, a massive, massive role but it's substantial enough as the, as the, uh, the counterfeit mule, you know, bringing the currency uh, in and out. Um, I think he's great here. And again, just used to completely sell just how stupid um, both Chance um, and and Vukovic are here. Um, this is a good opportunity, actually, to talk about another of the key themes that Friedkin touches on um, in the commentary, which is that, obviously, to live and die in LA, you know, we've already spoken about how it kind of goes into the whole aspect of, you know, the line between criminal law enforcement or law enforcer, um, which Freakin also reiterates in the commentary. But the other thing that I found really interesting listening to him was talking about how, yes, the film is about counterfeit money, but it's also about counterfeit relationships and manipulation and how every relationship in this movie is basically a means to an end. Chance is using Vukovic because he needs a partner to justify his actions and go along with him, you know? Um masters is using um the uh um 
oh, what's her name? She's using he's basically using his partner as a means of like sex and like voyeurism. He enjoys watching himself have sex with her. It's not really a case of like he actually has affection for this person, which kind of ends in a really great good for them ending involving her yeah. and her girlfriend, which is just fantastic. Um, and then obviously you have Chance using Darlan Flugel's character, Ruth, to, to get information. Well, at the same time, she's kind of using him to make sure that she doesn't... So it's it's really... It's it's such a great film about the kind of like... Um, there's a better word, there's a more elegant word than used, but the fakeness, the artifice. And it's like, when you think of the 80s as a decade, and you think about all that gloss, that excess, that image... Um, and again, how freaking dials into that kind of manufactured, this is all fake bullshit aspect of it through the lens of a story about counterfeiting. I think that is genius. It's so good. I, he's, he, I've, I mean, it, like I said at the beginning, I've watched two freaking movies and I'm like, this man's one of the best who's ever done it. Yes. Yeah. He, and it's crazy that you can tell that from two movies. Because I feel like even some of the best directors of all time, you would still be like not saying that that early on. I'm not getting words out well today. No, 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 you are. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it, I, I'm excited to watch the French Connection because it, it, the interesting thing is you've brought that up quite a few times in talking about this movie and what he mm-hmm. took from that in making this. It's a great companion. So it'd be piece. kind of interesting to see it the other way around. Mm-hmm. Did did Friedkin do the second French Connection? No, that was Frankenheimer. Um, John Frankenheimer, right. who you might recognise as the director of Ronin, nineteen ninety eight, which is a great yeah, movie. Yeah, and um, is, is is that movie con- as good? I I've heard I've not seen it personally because oh right, and I have I have the 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 double feature Blu Ray, and I still haven't ripped the bandaid on on French Connection two. And this isn't because you know, um, I I think John Frankenheimer is an excellent filmmaker. Like anyone who does the Manchurian Candidate, Ronan. Um, and and I just watched the training of the week, which was fantastic too. Um, to me, the French Connection as it stands is unsequelable, and I know people actually do quite like the sequel. But for me, the French Connection already overstays its welcome with its ending. And there's a bit—I won't spoil anything for you—but there's basically a bit at the end of the French Connection where it ends, and then there is a thing that happens afterwards, and it's kind of quite bolt on. And the whole thing with Hackman's character of Popeye, I think to pick him back up and put him in a... or a continuation of that story, um, and not to get... not to do any spoilers here, it's kind of like a Moby Dick-style thing for him. It just kind of... It, 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 for me, its existence undermines the ending. And I probably will eventually go watch it because I hear that it is a good movie. Um, but I think The French Connection is, own, is like a masterpiece and it stands in its own fantastically and i think a sequel is antithetical to what freaking is conveying in that yeah. film um but that's personal preference i know people like that movie um and i think if i was what i get out of i get more out of to live and die in la as a spiritual successor to the themes that freaking built on in the french connection than i would watching the french connection too but i, I think that's a fair take in the sense that you can you can go well look i don't know if i'd have made a sequel to the french connection i don't know if it was the best idea but that doesn't mean you have to immediately jump to seeing it and going, that's a bad movie. You know, you can yeah. still go, well, look, as its own thing, that's enjoyable. Would it, was it necessary? No. I mean, that I always feel like that's a weird way to talk about things because no movie is necessary in a way. It, it's, it's, 
every movie is more about someone wanting to bring their vision to 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 art which i don't know if that sentence makes much sense but you know what i'm trying to say is yeah. is, is when anyone goes you know a movie gets announced and they go is that movie needed and you go well no but what movie is needed like we're there, they're there for us to enjoy ourselves yeah i mean i think i think and... something can definitely be made for 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 the sake of it you know i think that is like the, oh for sure yeah, you know that's what content yeah. is i'm not saying the french connection to is content i'm just saying that when i came away from the end of the french connection and my heart's in my throat and i feel just like <laughs> so much devastation to then kind of continue that story um just feels a bit silly to me and that again i'm not yeah, shitting okay. on, on the great john frankenheimer there i i just think that for me um i just wouldn't go near that story again i just think it's so perfectly standalone and the same goes for to live and die in la which yeah it's the same with so many action movies it's like i, I feel that way about first blood in a way oh totally like... well first blood's such a prime example because those movies first blood's but it's so funny yeah. that you say that because the ending of first blood it sets the stage for them to pull that bullshit in the later sequels because i don't know if it you... does it does because because the original what? in the novel rambo dies like rambo, rambo dies he... yeah and rambo kills a lot of the police officers in the which novel, is why i I've want heard. you to watch the hunted because the hunted is freaking and it, it's so annoying to me because when that movie came out in 2003 a bunch of people were saying this is just a bad rambo but in in some ways you can argue that freaking actually cuts to the core of that story better than what the original first blood movie did and i think first blood's a yeah. great film but the hunted very much cuts the idea of like reckoning with the the idea of, of creating a killer and how that opens the pandora's box and how it's not always easy to fix and reckoning with 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 that in the midst of the war on terror which i think is just genius it's it's always a funny thing with Rambo because I don't want to make this a Rambo podcast, but it's hey, just very much the same. Good da- this is one of the patents of good segues. <laughs> but yeah, it was <laughs> how they've been missed. Um, it, it was Rambo is a franchise where it's like the first movie isn't as action heavy and it's more of a thriller and no one really dies, and then the second and third movies they turn them into these big bombastic action movies, and that's the Dan Greener formula for me to go hell yeah the sequels are awesome, but I don't love any of the Rambo sequels. No, because the first one is is so good at what it does, and it's, they're also so blatantly propagandistic. I'm not usually a guy who like <laughs> yeah. that, but like it is literally like you know, it is a ve- it was basically a vehicle for Sly to flex his muscles as Arnie was gaining momentum. That's that's what it was. Yeah, for sure. Like you don't if but it, it, like if Arnie doesn't make Commando and Predator, you don't get like Rambo three. Like you know what I mean? Like yeah, that, that and- movie, yeah to bring it back to this movie that's what i kind of i don't want to jump too far to the ending of this movie but that's what i love about the ending of to live and die in la is that it 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 does something that could be set up as a sequel but at the same time you go but it's never gonna be it's the the ending is literally just about the perpetual cycle exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah, it's, it's about those those awful influences and how our law enforcement is basically a nightmare um and i love if we're talking about that ending because we're not. I'm not going to talk about the ending. I'm going to talk about a thing that plays into the ending, and that's the love scene between Chance and Ruth. The re- the relationship that they have together. Um, the love scene. The thing that I find so interesting about this is that obviously Freakin talks about how like well, I only gave one piece of direction for this scene, and that was surprise me. 
And the thing I find so funny I love about this, this freaking. Yeah, the thing I find so funny about this, you know, so great and psychotic even, um, is how blatantly transactional it is. And it goes into the counterfeiting metaphor. But the thing that's so, so creepy about it, and I know it's like uh, everyone loves, um, you know, there's a reason why we love the vaunted uh, big shirt, no pant, you know, thing. Like when someone's Winnie the Pooh, <laughs> that's great. But yeah. psychologically speaking, for Chance's character, when he throws Ruth his own shirt and she puts it on and she takes it off a little bit, he is fucking himself. It's all to wax his own ego. And just like Masters, it's going into that tra- transactional element. This is a woman being used to, to massage his own ego. It's the same thing with Deborah Furr's character. He, she's being used to massage his own ego. And then what I love about the end of that, um, when they're having their pillow talk, and it really reiterates just how much of a creep um, a chance is, she's there trying to have conversations with him. She's like, you know, some say some people say that the, the stars are God's eyes. Do you think that? And he just looks at her and goes, no. There's, there's so much, many great moments where you kind of do get this hint that she does kind of care about him on a deeper level. But I don't, like I, him, I don't think so. Or it's, I think until she, the end, I, think, I should say. I think she is wanting, protect, I don't think she's got a sincere investment in him. What I think it is, is she wants him to put on at least a performance of I care in a way. Okay, yeah, I think it's a case of like she like when she they have their first meeting, their their date in the coffee shop, and um he asks her, like, oh what you go and she's there like, oh yeah my my my, my son's visiting. And you know, and I think she's building up to ask him, would you like to spend time with my son or whatever? And he's just like no. So I don't think there's genuine investment there. I think she knows what this is, but admitting what that said is, is torturous. That <laughs> I to me I felt like it, the movie tricks you into thinking there's genuine investment mm-hmm. until the end when Vukovic kind of says you were only ever in this for you but what I like is that in all those moments whenever she does try to have a genuine moment with him you just get the reminder that he does not give a shit about her at all there's a really great scene where he goes to her apartment or, or wherever she lives and she, uh, I forget what exact part of the film it is but she's like freaking out about something it's after it's and after, he's just rattling off it's just... after the diamond heist and she's worried that she's yeah, yeah. well the, the money is it, is the, it... the diamond cash heist yeah 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 and, and she's trying to sort of just have a moment of weakness around him and he's just talking about like I think a sports team or something yeah and and he's drinking it he just it's like she's not even in the room until she literally has to grab him and be like I am here and I am panicking, worry. I'm more worried that you are not worried. And then he and then he forces himself on her. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it's that's all he's in it for is is the the sex and he's almost tricking himself into thinking he's not, yeah. But I think he's almost tricking himself into believing he's not alone when he's with her. Yes, but because he's so cold towards her. He's just as alone when he's around her and this is, as he is and any other time. This is the fun thing. I really like that you brought up that kind of... That 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 want for camaraderie here. Because Chance clearly does crave that. And what I find interesting about it is that the movie never turns into that. But with Masters, um, it's almost like he's luring... He's already aware of how him and Chance... You know, the whole classic villain speech of you and I are not so unlike, uh, unalike or whatever. There's kind <laughs> of two like... Two sides of the same Exactly. Coin. There's kind of that dynamic to it. And there's that bit where Chance brings them the money. 
and Masters and Bianca are laughing, you know, about it. Almost as if they know that they that he's plummeted to new lows to get them this. Um, and I love that. I kind of, I love that they're all, they're they, all so fake. And the yeah, only, what, yeah. Sorry, that's what's interesting about it is I also think that he's so fake with his attempts at, at finding someone to be around with her and with Vukovic and even with his rivalry is not the word I want to use, but it's rivalry with Masters. Because they show you so many things that are so fake about this man, about Chance, about how he doesn't have love with this woman, he's just there for sex. About how he almost doesn't get thrills from anything and he has to do base jumping to find that thrill. But to me, the only, for a time, the only genuine thing in his life was his friendship with his partner. Who he's trying and to that's seduce. the one thing that's... <laughs> Yeah, and that's the one thing that's taken away from him. Yes, yeah, totally. In this movie, the only genuine thing that was in his life. Oh yeah, no, his original part. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking with Vukovic. Yeah, yeah sorry, the one who's killed. And, ah, and yeah. Vukovic, he's trying to mold into a proto him, which of course comes out to comes. But to he never has that. End. Almost, yeah, yeah. That's what he never had with Hart, who was like his mentor almost. Yeah. But he's all there, like ah, oh. and he's so frustrated by Vukovic because Vukovic is the wet towel. And you can see that his instincts, he's like, he comes from a good a family, a good cops. His instincts are so anti what chance is. But ultimately, he will still abide by the cultishness of the organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'll still abide by that kind of, those rules. He won't, he's not, he's not a snitch. You know, he's not that. Um, and ultimately, that, that, that's what morphs him into what he becomes at the end of the film. And I think it's just, it's so, we spoke a little bit earlier on about how they suck. How they suck at everything, whether it's them falling asleep on their stakeout, um, or you know, um, hatching this conspiracy, to, or you know, losing um, Totoro's character at, at the fucking hospital. The moment that Chance shows a moment of weakness, as well, by the way, the one time that he's willing yeah, to believe yeah, someone, yeah. it hurts him, which kind of he pounces is you know a fundamental moment in his downfall. They suck at that. They have the whole. I mean, actually, I need to ask you here, Dan, because it blew my mind when this revelation happened. So, because we need to talk about it. So, in order to get in with Masters, they pose undercover as, uh, I think it's like bankers for a, a Dutch holding company based in the Cayman Islands. And they're trying to get counterfeit money from Masters for this purpose. However, the... I think Vukovic pretends to be a doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the max buy that the Treasury Department... For count, will give them for counterfeit money is 10 grand. However, Masters wants, is it like 30? 30 grand? Yours 30, yeah. And before this point in the movie, Chance has been informed by Ruth that there is a man coming in with money to buy diamonds. Um, and slowly but surely, two things interlock, and Chance hatches this plan to basically steal this money so that they will have the buy money to go after Masters and implicate him, catch him with his pants down, exchanging counterfeit money. Everything goes wrong. He touches it as a massive piece of cake. Vukovic is massively against it, but ends up getting roped along anyway. They abduct this guy from the train station and are immediately started being tailed by what we think are probably criminal associates, mobsters, or whatever. Um, We have this amazing car chase, which we will break down in a little bit more detail. But before we get to the car chase, they hold him up. Chance is getting more and more annoyed. They find the money. um, But in the process of them holding him up, the the man gets shot by a sharpshooter on the bridge. And they have their getaway. 
it's an amazing scene. And then, obviously, you know, they, they, they split up with the money. Chance is super happy with himself. Vukovic is on the verge of having his brain leak out of his nostrils. He's that panicked by everything and horrified by what's... Horrified by being roped into this man's fucking, you know, journey to death. Um... And then the next day, they're in the briefing room, and Robert Downey Sr., who I've completely neglected to mention, is in this I've literally movie. just read that that's yeah. him, and I was going to yeah. be like, holy shit, did you know that? Yes, I didn't know yeah, that. he's credit. And um, <laughs> you don't see the resemblance? I No, I didn't oh, notice it. Maybe yeah. if I watched it back yeah, now, yeah, I, I would. But yeah, I really, really big resemblance. But yeah, as they're getting that briefing, they're like, ah, oh, this from our FBI friends, uh, an undercover agent by the name of Blah Blah was, was shot and killed by two assailants yesterday and an undercover sting operation. And you just have that moment where Vukovic and Chance look up, and they know, and, and even Chance shows a moment of vulnerability, and they know what they've done. Dan, when that when I when I watched that scene for the first time, I was my heart fell even further Mine into too. my stomach. I it, was like, oh my it, god. It blew my mind in a way, because it it just put everything into place about what this movie was because i was kind of enjoying it as like just a cop action movie for a long time and it kind of you know i was noticing all these little bits but then you i think there's a part of your brain that wants you to think because it's this like one good cop type movie or it's it's, you know trying to speak on that at least that's the way i always see it it is it's the moment where you go in my head, I'm like trying to make defenses for Richard Chance and the stuff he's doing because I'm going, he's just trying to take down the bad guy. In the same way that in most cop movies, they do something bad, but you go, he's doing it for the right reasons and he's taking down the bad guy. In the movie world, this is a good thing. They even have that scene and where he shoves go, into the judge's office. He's like, he was my partner, man. And in that, yeah, movie, exactly. Like, exactly. Like, yeah, it's his fucking partner, man. But also, you're thinking he's a bit of a big bitch baby because he is. <laughs> but yeah, in this moment, <laughs> the, the movie goes to you like, this is a this is as bad as anything that the villain of this movie has done like yeah. they've caused an innocent man to die and it is it's not even a thing where it's like they got involved and then the bad guys killed him i mean that is what happens literally but my point is it's it's a hundred percent their fault yeah even though they don't kill this guy, it's one hundred percent their fault the reason FBI the reason why dies. waxman dies is their fault. The reason why yeah. the FBI agent dies, it's their fault. Um, fucking the reason why Taturo's character gets away, it's Chance's fault. But even with that, you go like, you go, oh right, when Waxman dies, you go, Waxman's a bad guy. All right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're not too broken up about that. When um, Taturo gets away, you go, well, you know, Chance was just doing a nice thing briefly. And and the, it's always there that that's not what the case is, and it, it's always reminding you that that's not who Chance is. But th- this is the moment where it goes, hey, if you if you're not fucking realised yet, then you know this this is uh, they've not been doing the right thing here, mm-hmm. no matter what other movies might tell you. Yeah, and again, like it, while this is all happening, we're also having occasional glimpses of Masters. We have the bit where he links up with um, uh, do, 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 uh, Steve James's character, Jeff, the Rice. American Ninja fan. Here. Yes, yeah, you were really Fist happy with that when Steve James showed up. <laughs> He's so good in this film. He's so charming as the guy who's basically only in it to be like, uh, yeah, "Pay me yeah. a shift, you dude in prison." 
Um, R.I.P. Died way too soon. Yeah, yeah. The the scene where the the guy's legs, Louis, advance on them in the prison yard is so <laughs> f- like it's obviously quite harrowing in how kind of mundanely the scene is framed. You know, Friedkin comes from that documentary style background. And that's really where I feel it, it comes through there. Um, but it's just so funny when John Turturro is just like, hey, you think there's a guy getting whacked today? And they're like, yeah, I think so. Oh, hey, they're, they're walking over to this area and all the other people Shit, are moving away or whatever. Um, but that's a mild, mild, uh, mild segue. And you obviously get the bit where um, Masters also kills... Um, well, doesn't kill him. Freakin doesn't say that he killed him. When he's just there, he's like, suck on this. And he puts the barrel of the gun in his mouth. And the next scene is him burning all the money. Freakin says that that is meant to show that he wasn't killed, that he got the money back for Masters and then yeah, yeah. their association. I guess I hadn't really thought about that bit. I, I remember watching it and thinking that he'd killed him. But again, it makes more sense. If he's burning the money, then obviously it would have gotten the money off him without killing him. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I <laughs> that He was one of two people who showed up in this movie that I was, like, stoked to see them. The other one came up in the credits and I didn't know his name in the credits, but buzzing to learn that Dean Stockwell was in this. Oh, Dean Stockwell's class is the uh, the lawyer. Um, yeah, he's, he's fantastic. Bloody brilliant in this. Playing both, again, artifice, counterfeit relationships, playing both sides of the coin, selling out his buddy, you know, advising, you know, um, Vukovic. It's all, yeah. it's all so good. And talking about the car chase, because we need to talk about it, because everyone ha- hails... We absolutely do. Everyone fa- hails the French Connection as having the greatest car chase in some up there with Bullet. And I love Bullet's car chase. I love the French Connection's car chase. I also think Rodin, 1998, has contender for having the greatest car chase in the movie as well. Um, to Live and Die in LA is fantastic. Purely because, you know, it's freaking doing something that um, no one had really done at that point. You know, he's driving the car on the opposite side of the freeway. There are some amazing shots where the car, the camera is on the hood, mounted towards um, Chance in the driver's seat. And it does a slow 180 pan um, to face the road as they're driving. I think that's beautiful. My favorite shot in the entire movie is when they blow the back out of the uh, the back of the seat, and it's Vukovic looking through the glass at, at the pursuers coming towards them. I think that is just so good, so so good. Did you did you read about um, how Freakin kind of came up with this? <laughs> Uh, no. <laughs> I saw, I read a thing where, again, I'm just kind of stealing this off the Wikipedia page, so I don't know how accurate this is. I, I, sometimes I think Wikipedia for older movies is better than you think. It says here, he came up with the idea of staging the chase against the flow of traffic in 1963 when he was driving home from a wedding in Chicago. He fell asleep at the wheel and woke up in the wrong lane with oncoming traffic heading straight for him. He swerved back to the side, his side of the road and for the next 20 years wondered how he was going to use it in a film. That is fantastic. See, no <laughs> one else is like him. This is brilliant. He almost killed himself by falling asleep in mm, the car. That would be like, good in a like movie. Homer Simpson. Homer Simpson, when his, bed tur- his car turns into a yes! bed and he flies off to Dreamland. <laughs> he freaking did that. And he's so good at what he does for a living. His first thought was... Where does this go into a movie? Ah, <laughs> oh, brilliant. A man completely dedicated then, to the craft. <laughs> it, it, I saw something about how um, Peterson did do a lot of the driving as well, and a lot of Pankow's reactions were 
legitimately stressed out reactions from an actor who was scared. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, is that a, a, a nice way to go about things? I don't know. But uh, oh, he would. There's lots of stories of freaking uh, using those unorthodox methods yeah. to get reactions out of actors. I mean, I Same think all those kind of Kubrick Kubrick stories. That, yeah, um, I mean. I don't think they're ever as bad as you hear they are. The, the, the car chase stuff is brilliant. It's one of the all-time great L.A. Um, river sequences as well. Like, yeah, up there with, great. like, um, Point Blank. Like, it looks fantastic. And obviously T2 is another... And, and Grease, of course. And Grease, yes. And Grease. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, all of that's so good. And, you know, obviously all of this is building up to the big confrontation. They get the money... Um, and they approach Masters one last time to get to make the buy. Um, <laughs> all the while Vukovic is wrestling with his conscience over the fact that they killed that guy. Um, and he's about to convince Chance to, to hand himself in when Chance is like, we're going to go make the buy. Yeah, he's, he's had a meeting with Stockwell, hasn't he? And... Yeah, yeah. Again, they had that kind of like masculine show of force where they're patting down Vukovic. And then he goes to pat down Chance. He's like, hey, you don't fuck. You think I'm worried a fucking why? You think I'm doing this and this? Obviously, because he's carrying the revolver. Um, and they they meet up and they get the drop on him. And Chance just does, in his moment of triumph, does his classic ego thing, lets his yeah. guard down for a second time and gets his face turned to goop. It is one this of the is... most shocking, effective deaths oh, in film mate. history. I this is probably like a bad way to have watched it, like how I reacted, but because I feel like the movie obviously wants you to kind of revel in what's just happened. I paused it, <laughs> uttered the words to myself, "Holy shit!" and sat there for about a minute before I started playing. Oh again. wow! Because I was so stunned by what had just happened. I like how brutally this movie had just offed its main character like he was like a, a support like a really small like side supporting role he goes like he out gets... with less fanfare than his partner did exactly it's, it's like yeah he, do- he doesn't get a nice death but the th- what i mean is like because a lot of characters in movies like this don't get a nice death but he doesn't they the movie almost doesn't even take a moment to to sit in it it just goes, yeah. This is this has happened. This is what happens. This is the shit that happens when you do this. And it shows is it shows it shows the effects. And to be fair, like a shotgun at that range would do even more damage. But the effect, oh for sure, yeah. But yeah, the yeah. effect that they show, um, Freakin was talking about. He said that he came up with this effect for his his blood effect. Is like he has like um, he discovered it. I think he said he discovered it while working on. I could be completely wrong here. It's either Sorcerer or the French Connection, where he found this pump. And the way that he does it is like he squirts the pump and then the blood goes on that way. Um, and it's just such a good effect because the he looks, looks great. He, th- th- it's instant extinguishment. It, one minute he is there reveling in his victory, the next he is dead as doornails. Like he's yeah. gone. And and Vukovic is just there, like trying to like, like he knows that he's dead, but he's like, come on, like you you've been leading me through this, please, okay. And obviously, but it, yeah, it doesn't even do that thing where he spends like no, no it's like, only a few seconds. Yeah, when a hero dies like that, it spends a minute being like, no, please, you can't be dead. No, no chance, again a moment. Yeah, screaming in the air because he's dead and all. Master, this just goes <laughs> freaking. Who this is like? No, this dude got what he deserved. This is fucking dance the next bit. I don't even think it's absolution in a way. I think it is just it's it's that documentarian 
forensic lens. Like, obviously, it's more stylish. It's 80s gloss. But it's still like, this is what happened. He just died. This is how it happens. Yeah. Um, this is life. And and uh, as, as we said earlier on, this is the preordained fate he had. He had a death wish. And whether he knew it or not, it came for him. Um, and I think it's just absolutely amazing scene. So well handled. Which, of course, leads to Vukovic tracking down Masters. And this confrontation is amazing. You know, it's Masters in his one of his counterfeiting offices, sat on the floor, um, surrounded by all the evidence he's just torched. They're talking about the pointlessness of everything that's just happened. I believe I can, I can, I forget the exact lines of dialogue, but he's there talking. Like he, he's saying to Vukovic, like, "Yeah, I knew this was. Yeah, I knew, but I didn't care." I was just doing it. Um, yeah. And Vukovic is so kind of like overcome. He wants to go move to him and he just collapses. And Masters gets the drop on him. Nearly kills him. He's, gonna, he's tossing extra straw on him. He's about to light him on fire. Just set him on fire. And Vukovic finally gets the strength to shoot him, which leads to him dropping the lighter. And like his portrait at the beginning of the movie, completely immolating and writhing in pain, screaming as Vukovic plugs the rest of his revolver into him. That's the interesting thing is 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 uh, Master's death almost does get more of a a, a, a hit than Chances does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he's the cause of everything. Yeah, well, he's not, I guess, but he is in a way. He with Masters, it's, he's going out like a work of art, isn't he? It's meant to be a reflection yeah, of yeah. like you know, it's it's a it's one final kind of like just angry lashing out burning up you know one day you're there like a piece of art and the next he's gone freaking leaves you with that kind of quite horrible image of master's burning body and there's that white he's almost saying that's what masters would have wanted you to see well and then there's the white flash as well as as he starts firing that brief pause as if it's like a nuke that's just gone off it's it's beautifully done it's so good um which brings us into the epilogue, essentially, where we, we see the, the um, <laughs> uh, fucking De- uh, Deborah has basically been uh, using Masters all along. And, like, he'd been trying to get her to be like, oh, you know, uh, fuck, fuck your lady dancer friend for my pleasure. But really, she has a serious romantic involvement with, with this woman. At the end of it all, she walks away with all of Masters' money, all of his possessions, and his car. And I honestly think that's lovely. The only people to come out of this movie <laughs> with any kind of, like, <laughs> with any victory. Um, it's the two ladies. Let's go, lesbians. It's a class moment. I love it. Yeah, yeah. The only people who ride off into the sunset. A, a weirdly kind of hollow, but... Also, weirdly nice victory. Uh, it's great because it shows that it shows they that quite Ma- know how to feel. It shows that Masters wasn't a master. You know, he's he's completely kind of like duped himself. Um, yeah, yeah. And what better way to to show the artifice of everything than to have the counterfeiter be counterfeited? You know, it's so clever. And then we move into Vukovic assuming the role of chance. You know. Um, which is so funny because it lays bare the performative aspect of this idea of law enforcement. You know, Vukovic, before he met Chance, was a by-the-numbers kind of cop. Quite timid, but procedural. And now 
he's throwing his weight around like a big guy. When he's saying that to her, like, I didn't buy the character when he said that. And I don't mean that in the sense that I think it was wrong for the character to say that. I mean that in the sense of, I took it as him going, I'm going to do this, but you know, he's only going to do it even worse than Chance did. And he's going to fuck it up even worse at some point. And that cycle is going to continue and that cycle is going to get worse and worse and have more casualties every single time. And I, I I love that about it. That it's not a victory ending. Like in some movies, like you would go, like yeah, that character's taking the power for themselves. And in this, you go, he's took on the worst possible lessons he can from this. And all and all Ruth can do is just sit there and kind of just go, okay, you know, this what is the this fuck is can I do now, and, yeah. and 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 it's mirrored excellently by the title track to "Live and Die in LA by by Wang Chung, where it's like, I wonder why we waste our lives here and we could run away for paradise, but I'm stuck by some invisible vice and I can't get away to live and die in LA. They're all stuck in this cycle, this yeah. perpetual cycle, and they can't escape in this backdrop of artifice. It's beautiful. Every single aspect of this film is dialed in to telling you the same thing. And it's so artfully done and so entertaining at the same time and so devastating. It's, it is a masterpiece. I have two words for you and I have two words only. Uh, in the words of our good friend Vin Diesel... <laughs> The movie. Let, let me say. Let, let me. Oh wait. Let's, let's do it together. Ready? All right. Three, <laughs> two, one. Yeah. All right. All right. The movies. The movies. There we go. I'll also be honest that while you were talking about that last bit earlier, I was trying to find a clip on my phone of Vin Diesel saying that so I could play it up to the mic, and I couldn't find it. <laughs> you trying to get me copyright takedown? <laughs> <laughs> I thought two words was going to be okay. <laughs> it would be fine. Basically. Oh man, it's um. Yeah, that's to, that's to live in Dan LA. The movies. Yeah. I mean, I'm honestly, Dan, I know I've spoken exhaustively about this, but it's given me just as much pleasure to have you listen to my ramblings as it has to, to see you <laughs> having come away from this movie with your shit thoroughly rocked, because it is a thorough shit yeah, rocker. Yeah. Shit has been rocked. Shit was already rocked. Shit got even more rocked. And when I watch the French Connection, shit will probably get even further rocked. When do you think you're going to watch it? I think it's probably going to be in the next few days. <laughs> it's uh, it's on Disney Plus, so um, you should watch it there. But yeah, to live and die in LA, I again just fucking love this movie. I'm so glad that you enjoyed it, Dan. Um, it's phenomenal. How regularly will you be listening to the Wang Chung soundtrack now? Because it's <laughs> on rotation constantly here. I I I may or may not have at least played like the main theme of the movie a couple of times. It's so funny. It. So listening to I'm freaking not a guy. well, you'll you'll have this on the Arrow Blu-ray as well. But there's a great interview with Wang Chung about how they were recruited to do to live and dine away by Friedkin because when Friedkin was in London, he heard wait. And he was like, this is great. I've got this. I'm working on this movie. You guys are the perfect people to, to do this movie with me. And then they kind of got involved to score it. And one of the things Friedkin was like, he was like, whatever you do, don't do. I don't want a song that says to live and die in L.A. And then and then Wang Chung ended up doing that and showed it to Friedkin. He was like, boys, this is amazing. I've got to I'm going to reshoot <laughs> the beginning of the movie to get this in there and stuff like that. And hearing the affection that freaking have for Wang Chung in this is great. But just to close this out on, like, you know, talking about freaking one thing that you'll always hear about him is that, like, oh, he was quite uh, ang- angry and forceful 
and like quite combative and standoffish and had some you know um let's call them quirky directorial methods <laughs> part of that is true but from every single time i've listened to friedkin every single time i've listened to people talk about friedkin who knew him as a person um and that goes from like all the stuff with Kermode and him, who had an amazing friendship over the course of Kermode researching The Exorcist and making that documentary and ended up getting that new version of the movie. was was partially involved in getting the new version of the movie released in the early 2000s. The thing that I get from William Friedkin, what William Friedkin will always be to me, apart from just an amazing, talented filmmaker who really dialed into the visceral nature of humanity, um, is someone who was like so sincere in his love for film, but also warm and appreciative. When praise is given to him, he is so, like, loving and grateful and thankful for it. And he's always quick to elevate those that he considers fine collaborators. You know, he's always elevating other people. And he's quite a humble director. Like, he did a lot of good stuff, but... He, in his own words, I think he said that like he didn't consider himself a notary, he just considered himself a guy who happened to make a few good movies. Um, and I just think, like, what a loss, but what an amazing life. And I love... I just think William Friedkin is amazing. One of my favourites. Uh, truly, truly, yeah, truly I, good. I... And and it's, it's, it's so weird, the timing of it happening, as I was having my little exorcist obsession and basically consuming <laughs> every single one of the... Every single Billy Friedkin thing that I could, but I just think that everything, every time I hear Billy Friedkin talk about the movies or people talk about Billy Friedkin, I just get the idea. I just get the sense that this dude was a nice, kind yeah, man who cared very much about what who he did. cared. Yeah, yeah. And we get one more from him. There's there's a there's a new movie coming, isn't there? With Lance Reddick in as well. I forget what it's yeah. called, which is bad on my part. But... Yeah, yeah. No, it's um, um you know looking forward to that a great deal was this um, his, has he directed anything since he did uh killer joe with mcconaughey Kill, killer joe was the last movie he did before the kane mutiny court martial which is yeah that's, next one. So that's a long that's a long break as well yeah i mean i think after to live and die in la um he kind of had a, a fallow period in the 90s um he did a movie called rampage which is based on a serial killer story which i know some people kind of rate but it didn't really do that well the guardian is another one that people kind of go back and forth on no i haven't um and then there's jade which is on my watch list which i've seen a lot of people talk about with like a lot of praise i know some people aren't a big fan but i think it like I, I'm, I'm curious about that one um and it also has uh in freakin's own words i think he says that jade has his best chase theme um which i'm curious about um so but yeah i freaking what a guy and uh, i can't wait for you to continue your friedkin journey <laughs> i'm excited i'm excited i think i'm gonna save the exorcist for october because i like to be cliche and watch a bunch of you horror movies in october should have a and there's a new exorcist out you don't need to watch the new one Dan. no i mean but i'm just saying you know there's <laughs> two reasons there I you guess. should um you should there should be a 50th anniversary screening for you in the audience when, when it was it 73 Yes, yeah. Oh, shit, I got I got a 50th anniversary screening of Enter the Dragon tomorrow, which I'm psyched about. Oh, that's awesome. That and The Exorcist in one year, that's excellent. But yeah, I mean, I've still got a few freaking movies I need to watch. I need to watch Cruising, um, which I think I might do either this oh, yeah, weekend Cruising's great. or the following weekend at some point. Um, 
but yeah that's that's really it i think that's all that's all she wrote um thank yeah, you dan yeah. so much for for joining me for this little william freaking tribute hour thank you for having me as always and i'm glad we got to uh as usual throw in um the vin diesel movies clip and a reference to the simpsons at some point like (laughs) (laughs) you know we just spend like over an hour talking about films which is quite tame in terms of podcasting terms i I must admit we spend over an hour talking about movies and yet vin diesel eloquently and bluntly can summarize it in about two seconds so that's the stay humble folks that's the (laughs) message there um before we go, I want to give a quick shout out to our patrons. You can go support the Wheel of Dumb Movies podcast, of course, on patreon.com. Um, thank you, Christopher Darby, George Jackson, Thomas Mulgrew, Shaka, and Josh Brown for your support. I've got some, I'm actually going to start writing again, Dan. This is amazing. I've got the writing bug Hell back. Yeah. So I'm going to start getting some more stuff on there. I think potentially with something on Preakin. Um, and yeah, you can follow the Wheel of Dumb Movies podcast on Twitter at Wheel of Dad Movies. You can follow me on Twitter at You and Ruins Things, although I'm not really around as much as I used to be. Dan, where can they all find you? Uh, mainly Twitter at DanGreamer92. That's G-R-I-M-A. I am, I'm not really using it very much at the minute, but I am on Blue Sky as well on the same name in case Twitter I've been calling it Blueski. Blueski. I like that better. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, yeah, so I'm on Twitter and Blue Sky. I'm on Letterboxd, uh, which is, I think possibly the same name um or i think it's just dan greamer on letterboxd keeping um, it simple keeping the greamer brand yeah simple. and i'm just yeah tweeting about movies a lot and watching action movies and i'm trying to get back into a few westerns i'm, I'm slacking a little bit on my westerns so i want to i want to fill the back end of the year with a lot more westerns remember to save pale rider for october because we're gonna do that then okay okay noted yeah noted i i, I watched uh two recently which were uh we discussed briefly off the podcast that i watched high plains drifter mm-hmm. and then i watched uh joe kid a couple of weeks ago oh, i like that one um, i know you didn't like it but i, like I that didn't one. didn't love it it was okay it's definitely it okay. yeah it it's moments. definitely tame as far as clint westerns go but there are some aspects yeah. of it that i i appreciate felt a little confused about what it wanted to be i felt mm-hmm. like fair 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 um have you seen sam raimi's the quick and the dead no it's on my list it will be watched by the end of the year that might be on netflix so you might as well give that a shot i believe it is yeah 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 go on give give it 99 sure it's on netflix i'll give that i want to go give give the quick and the dead a watch go on do it all right you've 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 convinced me Ah, but yeah, this has been um the wheel of dad movies podcast to live and die in dad movie um (laughs) thank you all for joining us and we will catch you next time bye